All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness, and thanks for loving us, and for, uh, for your word, and uh, help us just to hear from you, Lord. Today, we want to hear uh, the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking through your word deep into our hearts to encourage, to um, just do whatever you would have for us today, Lord, please. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Colossians chapter 4. So today, Lord willing, we'll finish Colossians. We'll do chapter 4 in one piece here today. And then next week we go to, anybody remember? Jeremiah. 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 Um, you know, it's probably, uh, so if you're, if you're a plan ahead kind of person, um, start reading Jeremiah a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, I was telling some of my kids this morning, you know, I, I kind of, I love these epistles, right? I love Colossians. I love Ephesians. I love Philippians. Um, you know, it's, I said, I could be a, I could just enjoy being a, an epistle teacher, right? Um, but I think uh, all the word is valuable. And uh, <clears throat> as I was um, convicted by one of my kids this morning, I was saying, yeah, next week I start Jeremiah. You know, because Jeremiah is, if you look at it one way, it's super encouraging that God is in control and everything else like that. But if you look at, if you look at it another way, it can be a little bit of a downer, right? Jeremiah had a hard life and, and all this. And, and one of my kids was saying, yeah, it's going to be tough for you reading about the life of Jeremiah, sitting on the porch with a glass of iced tea reading about the life that Jeremiah experienced. So anyway, I'll do that um, this week. So there's a lot to learn from all of the Bible. It's so rich, so rich. So Colossians, chapters one and two told us that Jesus was preeminent. Jesus holds the world together and holds our very lives together. And let me just say parenthetically, the world that we know and love today is in no more disarray than it was two or three years ago. Hear me? Hear me? The world that we know and experience today is in no more disarray than it was a couple years ago. And yet we feel like it is, right? Well, the reason it's not is why? Because God is on the throne. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because God's plans are ordained. God knows what he's doing, and God is no less in control. And I praise the Lord that he's in control. And no government is in control. No military is in control. No smart person is in control. Praise the Lord, no doctor is in control. And God is in control. And so we need to sort of make our brains park there a little bit, if you will, because our brains want to wander off of that place, right? And so we need to make our brains park there a little bit. Jesus is preeminent. Je Jesus holds the world together. And, and yet Jesus died for us, even though he was, you know, uh, he's in control of everything, and yet he died for us personally so we could individually have intimate fellowship with him and with one another. And so we serve him, not because we're trying to 
earn good favor or, or do the right thing or be good Christians or any of that. We serve him primarily because we want to enjoy fellowship with him that he has already made available to us. And so it's important that we get that. We're not working a religion. We're not doing a religious duty. We're enjoying fellowship with our Heavenly Father and with one another as a result of that. Chapter 3 went on to some practical application, sort of some you know, personal exhortations, things to put off, uh, some sort of attitudes maybe, some, some habits, some, some ideas, uh, and then things to put on uh, instead that would enhance our uh, fellowship with God and with one another. And then that moves us into chapter 4, uh, which is some final remarks and some personal testimonies, which I think are often very educational. All right? That's the backdrop. Everybody ready? Colossians chapter 4. I saw one or two or three nods maybe. Are you ready? I, but I, this is, you know... It's a good thing this is not a high school pep rally. I think our team, our team might lose if it was dependent upon our enthusiasm collectively. But our team's going to win! Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You may know that we read that verse last week, and uh, I read it today just because I said we're ch- uh, looking at chapter 4. Uh, chapter, that verse kind of tied together, uh, or, or wrapped up the end of um, instructions on the home and the workplace. And again, just as a reminder, um, employers treat employees with fairness and respect and dignity knowing that, quote, you also have a master in heaven. Let me just say this parenthetically. Again, I've said this a million times. I'm super intrigued by sort of social dynamics and, you know, changes in the workplace and stuff like that. And obviously, that's a moving target right now, big time. You know, we're in a labor crisis. Did anybody notice we're in a labor crisis, right? We're in a labor crisis. Um, I doubt that there's a business in America that's not hiring, (laughs) Uh, it just seems that way, and, and probably a handful, probably most businesses would say they're desperate uh, for good labor. And yet, so there's, there's employees, you know, it's, it's an employee's opportunity to pick. And I believe with all my heart, employers hear this, um, I believe with all my heart, the employers that are going to be staffed, we'll say, with reasonable workers are not necessarily the ones that pay the best. Hear this. But the ones that, and I'm not necessarily a prophet, I'm just in my mind. This is just my opinion. Um, They're not necessarily the ones that pay the best, but the ones that treat their workers with dignity and respect. The ones that treat their workers with dignity and respect. And so that's not just my opinion. That's instruction from uh, Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. And so, uh, for what it's worth, I think we'll uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what side you're on, um, I think we're going to see that play out very tangibly. So then he goes on, he gives some final encouragements here. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Be earnestly, continue, like don't just pray once and be done. Continue earnestly in prayer. He tells the Thessalonians, uh, 
pray without ceasing, right? Uh, but here he says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So, you know, these words earnestly and vigilant, those imply a determined effort on our part, right? And these are, again, you know, this is a, prayer is a very interesting application. I think it's a very real application of our uh, kind of understanding of sort of the responsibility, sovereignty spectrum that we talk about all the time, uh, because prayer is a responsibility thing, is it not? Right? And so, uh, so we can't take away from that. Are we supposed to pray? Yeah. Do we pray because God needs us? No. Does, is God waiting for, like, our suggestions? Is God going to change his mind if I beg him? I don't think God changes his mind. Now, you know, if you're, like, some people, like, way on the responsibility side, some people would say, well, what about, like, you know, uh, Moses? You know, God said after the calf thing, right? God said, hey, get out of my way. I'm going to wipe these people out. And Moses says, no, 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 don't do that. Um, you know, then the Egyptians would say, you couldn't finish what you started, basically. That's a pretty rough paraphrase. But anyway, um, and so then God didn't, right? So did, God, did Moses change God's mind, or was God testing Moses, right? God does those kinds of tests, right, elsewhere in the Scripture, right? So, depending on where you're at on that. But anyway, so all that to say, we don't take away from prayer. Prayer is, is commanded by the Scripture. Now, so if we don't, you know, if, if God doesn't need our help, and God doesn't need our prayer in order to accomplish His purposes, which, you know, we would, I think we would agree that, why do we pray? You ever think about that? Me too. I think God involves us. God is so loving that he involves us and he likes to involve us in what he's doing. Right? A father, I mean, I, I experience, I've experienced this over the years many times. Let's say I have a project that I need to get done. Right? And let's say I have a young child. So my son-in-law has projects with his kids, with my grandkids, right? And let's say he wants to, uh, I don't know what the project might be, let's, but anyway, he's, he's going to decide, is he going to do it by himself or is he going to invoke the help of his young children? Which option is more efficient? Just answer in your mind. Don't say it out loud. Children are in the room, Right? It might be a little less efficient to engage the children, right? But, I mean, does he need the children in order to pull off the project? No. But does he engage the children to help him be a part of what he's doing? Yeah, I think that's what our Heavenly Father does with us somehow in his, in his sovereign plan, right? He likes to involve us in his work. He likes to engage us in what he's doing because it's a part of what we've been talking about. He wants to have fellowship with us. And what's important to him needs to be what's important to us, right? And so I believe prayer puts us in deeper fellowship with God and with his purposes. purposes and it also gives us a bit of a vested interest in what he's doing. Does that make sense? It gives him a vested interest in what, it gives us a vest, vested interest in what God is doing. 
right? We could say, you know, God's in control. He's going to work everything out, but I'm just going to live my life. Well, God is in control, and he's going to work everything out, right? But it's altogether different if we are battling in prayer along with that. And again, it's not dependent upon us, but it puts us in tune with what God's purposes are. Does that make sense? If you've got a vested interest in something, you're all about it. I remember over the years, this is a silly example, so please don't compare this with the magnitude of God and prayer and all that. But over the years, um, my wife would make dinners for us, right, for the family. And it wasn't uncommon. It's not been uncommon. still really isn't. For her to spend a couple hours or whatever making dinner, she's poured her life into it. She's poured all of her, you know, all of her various parts of her mom brain, which is crazy complex, right? Uh, you know, it's got to be healthy and it's got to be good and it's got to satisfy. You imagine trying to satisfy everybody around that table? It's wearisome. But anyway, so she's been working all afternoon or whatever to put dinner on the table. She, uh, you know, we sit down and we pray, right? And then what does everybody do? She spent two hours making it. What does everybody do? They wolf it down in 30 seconds. And she's like, can we just like savor it, right? Why? She has a vested interest in it, right? For the rest of us, we're showing up for, there's a bowl of food in front of us, Right? And how much more so, God has so much going on, right? And if we have a vested interest in it through prayer, then we're in line, we're, we're more in tune, more, more in touch with the heart of God. And I think it makes us more compassionate. Doesn't cha- again, it doesn't change God's purposes. I like what, uh, to me, one of the most insightful passages regarding this. Remember Mordecai, uh, Esther's uncle? right? Remember? Uh, the Jewish people are going to, they're about to be annihilated by wicked Haman. You know, you know the story. Uh, wicked Haman's about to annihilate the, uh, the entire Jewish nation, and Esther just happens to find herself in the position of the queen, and the king doesn't know about this plot yet, and, you know, this whole drama is playing out, and Mordecai encourages Esther to take a stand and risk her life to save the Jewish people. And he says this. It's fascinating. He says, again, I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know, God's going to save the Jewish people by some means because God is God. The Jewish people are his, his people. The Messiah has yet to come. And, you know, the Messiah is going to come from the, from the Jewish people. And so, yeah, God's not going to let the Jewish nation get wiped out. He's going to get it done somehow or other. But could it be that he's placed you in this position for such a time as this so you can be the one to be an instrument of what he's doing? What a privilege. What a tremendous privilege. And for us, that we get to pray earnestly, continually, vigilant, that we get to be a part of that is a privilege. If we don't, guess what? God's still God. He's going to do what he's going to do. But we will have missed out on being a part of it. And so Paul tells us to be earnestly uh, in prayer, vigilant. And please don't forget this part, with thanksgiving. 
keep, keep in mind Paul's writing these words from a Roman prison with thanksgiving. So we're not talking just about circumstances. Oh, I'll be thankful when everything lines up properly for my life. Well, guess what? It's going to be a long wait, right? But if we choose to be thankful, if we choose to be thankful regardless of the circumstances, it's, it, it, it changes everything. I've got to tell you, just in personal application, I was one morning this, this week, I forget what it was, I was a little bit burdened by some stuff, and, and, and I was just, and I started praying. You ever have like this sort of diet, you feel like you're having a conversation with the, with the Lord? And, and in my mind, I'm, I'm like, Lord, I, would you please just guard my heart? That's my emotions. And my mind, that's my thoughts. Would you please guard my heart and my mind? And then my mind goes to, uh, you know, because his word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Guard my heart and mind in Christ Jesus. My, my mind goes to Philippians chapter 4, right? Because that says that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And in my mind, I was like, oh, yeah, the peace. Of, oh, Lord, I'd really like to have the peace of God right now. Can I please have the peace of God that guards my heart and mind in Christ Jesus? And then in my mind, so I went back to this verse because I was was forgetting the exact wording of it and realized that he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's a lot. That's a lot in those verses. But thanksgiving, I believe, is a key part of it. A very key part of it. Thanksgiving puts our takes our our uh, it takes our our self pity and turns it on its on its heels, right? And throws it back to the goodness of God. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I know my situation is is difficult. And please hear me. I, I'm I'm aware of a lot of your situations. And you know, people go through hard times. It would be insensitive for me to stand up here and say, "Hey, everybody, get over it," right? I get that, and we all have very difficult trials that we go through at times, but thankfulness puts the focus back on the Lord. He says, meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. And so, you know, uh, from our perspective, we're supposed to pray for each other, especially that each other would be effective ministers of the gospel wherever we go and whatever we do and whoever we interact with. Uh, And even in Paul's perspective, again, he's in prison. He's in prison. He's number one, thankful, and he's number two, saying, hey, pray that the Lord will give me opportunity to say what I need to say to who it needs to be said. Paul is focused on the Lord and on others much more than on his circumstances. His circumstances are real. He's not taking anything away from that, but that's not his focus. Verse 5, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Now, this is very important very important. Uh, So walk in wisdom to those who are outside. You ever notice, so just for a minute, to those, what about to those who are inside? You ever notice that inside, you ever notice that when we come in here and maybe when we fellowship and we talk to one another, we have like sort of a common understanding that we're all in church together, right? And so we might use our church vocabulary do you know we have a church vocabulary? 
Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Uh, hedge of protection. What's a hedge of protection? Right? There's, you know, there's all kinds of things like that. You know, you can make, I don't mean to make light of it, but there's an understanding. There's a way we talk. There's a, there's a vibe that we have with each other. And that's those inside. But there's, and it's not that we live a double life or anything like that, but there's a way we engage with those that are outside, right? And sometimes I think we don't understand or we're not as sensitive to them as we ought to be. We just think they're outsiders. And so we think it's us and them. And Paul says, walk with wisdom toward those who are outside. The outside means that we graciously try to win them over. Sometimes it means if they have an agenda that's out to harm us or those we love, then we protect. And that requires wisdom, right? And so we walk with wisdom. Uh, Maybe it's for our own protection. Maybe it's for outreach. We have to understand that. We have to have godly wisdom to carry that out and to discern those things. Where does wisdom come from? James chapter 1 comes by asking from God who gives it liberally. If anyone lacks wisdom, he says, ask God and he'll give it liberally. And then finally he says, redeeming the time. See, I notice time's ticking away. Time's ticking away. Please, 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 we need not, we must not waste time. We need to live this life deliberately. We need to live this life intentional. Uh, There's a time for relaxation. There's a time for rejuvenation. There's a time for restoration. There's a time for sleeping and eating and all of those sorts of things. But I believe, perhaps like never before, we need to redeem the time. We need to um, we need to be intentional in all that we do. He says, "Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt." that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Let your speech always be with grace. Raise your hand if you've conquered that one. If you have, you can come on up here and finish up because I'm done, (laughs) right? None of us have conquered that one. Let your speech always be with grace. That's a good admonition for us. You know, grace, there's something about, you know, there's something about us as people. We like to get the job done. We like to get to the point. We like to fix that problem. And yet sometimes there's, we like to, to say what needs to be said. We, need, we like to clear the air. We like to make sure he gets his, what he's got coming to him right? What is grace? Grace is getting more than we deserve, right? Grace is, I deserve eternity in hell, but I'm going to heaven instead. That's grace, right? And grace is just the realization that I'm under grace. I deserve deserve hell, but I'm going to heaven. And because of that, that should impact how I talk to others, That should impact how I talk to those in the church as well as outside the church. My speech should always be with grace. Seasoned with salt. You know, salt in the ancient world was a preservative. I like this. Salt was a preservative. So if I'm... If it says, let your speech be always with grace, 
My speech usually is what I is how I communicate with another person or persons, right? That's speech. So speech by definition, you know, unless I'm talking out loud to God, you know, or myself, right? Speech by definition is relational. It, it's how I interact with other people, right? And so if it's to be seasoned with salt, we're talking about a relationship. That means my speech should preserve the relationship. My speech should preserve the relationship. Are there things that I can say that can damage a relationship? Yeah. Are there things I can say that can kill a relationship? Yeah. Sometimes relationships need to be resurrected. And maybe our speech needs to be such that resurrects uh, an otherwise or previously dead relationship. But our speech needs to be seasoned with, it needs to be full of grace and seasoned with salt so that it'll preserve, preserve that relationship. There's so much, there's so much to be had from that. You know, I think as I, as the older I get, you know, I tell one of my kids this week, uh, you know, I, the older I get, the more soft and fluffy I get, right? <laughs> I used to be pretty firm. Uh, and that should, I, that's not necessarily me. That's the Lord in my, working in my life, right? And there's just something, you know, you can't, you can't really give a PowerPoint demonstration or instruction on let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt. But the Holy Spirit can do that in your life. And the Holy Spirit can do that in your heart. And then out of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And so that should just be prayer for all of us, including me, that our speech would always be with grace, seasoned with salt. So now in this final section, starting in verse 7 down to the end, Paul moves into uh, uh, a section regarding greetings with individuals. Now, if you're like me, when you read one of Paul's letters, you get to this part like... And you think, I don't care who says hi to who, right? You're, you're tempted to say that, right? Okay, act like you care for the next half hour, okay? Because I think there's, interesting, I think there's some interesting lessons here. As I, was, as I was kind of praying and thinking over this in my mind, thinking of it like this. So much of our, so much of our, Efforts in either marketing or social endeavors or political endeavors is this balance of the individual versus the collective uh, group or the collective good. Is that fair? I mean, honestly, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not going to get too deep into this, okay? You breathe a sigh of relief. But, you know, right now, there's a dynamic, there's a, there's a dynamic tension in our country, and maybe in the world, but certainly in our country, about how we approach, you know, this virus, okay? Do I have a responsibility for my own 
perception of how I'm to deal with my health, or do I have a responsibility to society? And if those are in conflict, I feel the tension. Does anybody understand what I'm talking about? Do I need to get more specific? I don't think so. Am I going to tell you what I think uh, the right answer is on that? No. As an old friend of mine once said, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid, right? So, but the point is, we have this balance of collect the collective good or the collective movement of people versus the individuals. Does that make sense? And I think, take, take politics, take the virus out of your mind now, uh, go back to two years ago, and here's what happened. A lot of times, even in the church, in the church, what we're most interested in is, you know, filling seats. And so what we're most interested in is moving the masses, herding them like cattle, right? We, so we talk about how many, you know, pastors talk about this, like how many people we're running, right? Are we running people, right? Like we're running X number of people a, a Sunday. No, I've, I've heard one guy go off on how much he didn't like that. But, you know, we use terminology like that sometimes. And uh, sometimes even in the church, we can be all about, you know, we want to move the masses. We want to move them into here, right? We want to move them over to the offering plate. We want to move them, you know, we want to move the masses sort of collectively, right? And some of that, I mean, you know, there are incentives we can do and, you know, sort of encourage all that to some extent. But we should never, ever, as Christians, as ministers of the gospel, as agents, uh, Corinthians tells us, as ambassadors of Christ, placed on this earth for such a time as this, in this point in history, in this point in society, in this location on the world, we've been placed for such a time as this, we must not lose sight of individuals. And I think that was a, that was a, that was a, a critical distinction in the church. If we, if we seek to encourage and minister to individuals, then we may not be as effective at moving the masses as we might if we used less personal techniques, we'll say. But I think God wants us to not neglect the individuals. Consider the life of Jesus, right? Did Jesus move masses? Yeah, he moved masses. Was he effective at what he did? Yeah, he was. But did he lose sight of individuals? No. He was very attentive to individuals. He, you know, John chapter 4, he went out of his way to uh, make sure he had an appointment with that woman at the well, right? The Samaritan woman. Paul, right? Consider Paul one of the greatest biblical scholars, if not the greatest, evangelist, missionary, church planter. Now he's talking about his friends, one at a time, right? And so please catch this. this I, I, think, I think these parts of Paul's letters are there intentionally so we can, so we can hear about what's going on in these individuals' lives, but also we, so we can not lose sight of the fact that God deals with us as individuals. Aren't you glad God deals with us as individuals? You know, you ask my, okay, so I have nine children, right? I have nine children. Eight of them are here today, okay? Now, let's say you've, you've 
let's say you know them all, okay? What would be better if you went up to them and said, oh, you're one of those Murphy kids? Or if you identified them by name, which would be better? Are they one of, the, are they one of those Murphy kids? Yeah, they are. But they have identities, right? They have identities. We've, we've encountered this over the years. Um, uh, you know, we'll meet, we'll meet a family or something like that. And, and, uh, this kind of, my kids kind of tease about this. You know, they'll meet, some, meet somebody, right? And we'll maybe introduce my kids and, and whoever it is, that maybe it's a friend of mine or somebody like that. And like, I'll, go, I'll start to introduce, you know, all my kids. And, you know, Joe here will say, he interrupts me. What does he say? What does he say as I'm introducing all my kids? Yeah, I, don't, don't bother. I'm not going to remember, remember them all. Right? I'll tell you, I'll embarrass Drew for a minute because he likes to be embarrassed. First time we met Drew, he had a flip phone <laughs> with a camera that had um, a half a pixel. And, uh, uh, and first time he met all my kids, you know what he did? He took pictures of all of them. so you could memorize their names, right? Never, please, lose sight of individuals. Never lose sight of individuals. It's okay to move the masses. It's okay to move cultures. It's okay to impact the culture. It's okay to impact the world for Christ. Don't lose sight of the individual that's standing right in front of you. I've seen this happen so often, and this is why I'm going off on it. I've seen so often that person right in front of you, you just doesn't seem as, it doesn't seem like real ministry. It doesn't seem big enough or grand enough because it's that person right in front of you. Well, it could be that God placed you in the presence of that person right in front of you, divinely orchestrated for that purpose, right? Don't lose sight of that. So, what about these individuals? Tychicus, a beloved brother, verse 7, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. So this guy Tychicus, you know, I've listened to different people talk about him. They can't even agree on how to pronounce his name, right? So, you know, he's a little bit obscure. Raise your hand if you know all about Tychicus. You could write a biography on Tychicus. Okay, nobody, right? We might know that there's a Tychicus in the Bible, right? But apparently he brought this letter to the Colossians and, to, and the Ephesian letter to the Ephesians uh, from Paul in prison. Acts chapter 20 indicates that he was with Paul toward the end of the third missionary journey, and then so he kind of went back to, uh, probably traveled with Paul back to Jerusalem, and then out onto Rome. So he followed Paul during all that uh, very challenging time and now is with Paul in, uh, in Rome. And Paul calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. Let me ask you this. Would you like to have a grander summary statement than that on your tombstone? What if this was on your tombstone? Beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant in the Lord. I'd say it's a good life, right? Here's the thing. Do we know who Tychicus is? No. God does. God does. And so it's okay. You know, um, you know, 
none of us will probably have monuments uh, made, you know, in our honor or whatever like that. You know, we probably won't, uh, you know, we'll probably be about as obscure as Tychicus in the grand, in the grand scheme of history. But in the eyes of God, this guy is a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant of the Lord. That's pretty cool. We can handle that. He said, I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And so he sends, he sends Tychicus for two reasons. Number one, that he may know their circumstances. Again, we talk about God's, God loves us despite our circumstances. We need to be thankful regardless of our circumstances. But God does care about our circumstances. God acknowledges our circumstances. God knows when we go through difficulty. God's there for us when we go through challenging times. And then the second reason he sent Tychicus is that he may comfort their hearts. So Paul, again, Paul's in prison. Paul cares about the Colossians. Paul has Tychicus, a guy who's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. You know, if if I were Paul, I'd want that guy staying with me to hang around and kind of minister to my needs. After all, I'm in prison. I might have some, you know, I might need that guy to comfort me. But no, Paul sends him to comfort these folks. Always thinking others-minded. We need to be people more and more and more that think of others more than ourselves. And that's a process. Verse 9, he goes on. He says, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. So Onesimus is going with Tychicus. Now, some of you know from Onesimus, from the book of Philemon, we know that Onesimus was a runaway slave, right? This guy Philemon owned Onesimus, and Onesimus was a runaway slave. Now, in the ancient world, right, Philemon had every right to have Onesimus executed, because he's a runaway slave. Well, he runs away and somehow winds up in Rome uh, with Paul. He gets saved and he becomes one of Paul's sort of companions, so much that Paul writes the letter to Philemon and says, hey, by the way, this guy came to me, he got saved. I know you could have him executed, but I'm I'm gonna encourage you to give him mercy. Philemon was a runaway slave who got saved, and now he's a faithful and beloved brother. Apparently, he was from Colossae, but he also says he's a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. So now he's not just somebody who happens to be from the same town, but he's now one of you. He is a part of the body of Christ. So Onesimus, a runaway slave with a death sentence, now a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Can I say this? Never underestimate the power of God to save somebody, to clean up messes, to change a human life. Nobody, nobody, nobody is outside of God's grace. And even as I say that, if we're honest with ourselves in the room today, I mean, there's a small handful of us. If we're honest with ourselves in the room today, there's somebody we could think of that says, that guy would never get saved. Right? Am I right? 
There's somebody we could think of right now that say, that guy could never get saved. And it may very well be that the reason we think that is because that guy done me wrong. Right? Nobody, not even a runaway slave with a death sentence, is outside of the hope of the grace of God. Scripture says, God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So Aristarchus was also one of Paul's traveling companions. He was on the third missionary journey. He was there. You may recall on the third missionary journey, there was a riot in Ephesus, a big, it was a big ordeal. Aristarchus was right there with Paul at that time. And then apparently he also went with Paul to Jerusalem and then he set sail with Rome, uh, with Paul to Rome in Acts chapter 27, it mentions that. Uh, And now again, he's a fairly, he's a fellow prisoner. So again, uh, just like Tychicus, uh, Aristarchus is not necessarily concerned with his own comforts, uh, but he wants to uh, be alongside Paul in the work that he's doing. And also with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So this is John Mark, who wrote the book of Mark, right? Many of you know the story. Uh, John Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, right? And then um, he bailed out after the start. He couldn't, he couldn't finish the, the, the task. He got, well, he got homesick or he got scared or whatever like that. He bailed on him, okay? And then when Paul and Barnabas get ready to set sail on their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, I'm going to call with John Mark. He's going to come along with us. Paul said, no, he's not. He bailed on the first one. He's a rat. He can't, he can't cut the grade. Barnabas says, no, I'm going to bring him along. Paul says, no, you're not. Barnabas says, yes, I am. Paul says, no, you're not. You ever had one of these conversations? You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You ever wonder how many times you have to say that before like, that person's going to get it? I don't know what the number is. But anyway, so they decide part ways. It says the contention, the book of Acts tells us that the contention became so fierce that they set the ways. Paul and Silas go this way. Barnabas and John Mark go this way. And so they, um, they separated for a time. Now, something's happened to John Mark over time in his relationship with Paul. Could be that he repented. Could be that Barnabas' discipleship kind of made him a guy that couldn't you know, cut the grade, if you will. Or maybe that Paul just accepted him. And Paul was growing in grace as a child of God, right? Could have been any of those three. Here's what I think is interesting. Scripture never tells us. Scripture never tells us. You know, you, there's a part of us that would kind of like to have the, the interim backstory, right? What happened to John Mark between when he bailed and he was worthless as a missionary to now Paul says, hey, you know, I'm sending him with you. If you, you know, and Paul's giving him an endorsement. Uh, you know, if he comes to you, welcome him. At the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul describes Mark as useful to me for ministry. So what happened? We don't know. And I think that's important. I think that's important. You know, so often I hear these stories. I heard another one yet this morning. 
you know, about, you know, I haven't seen such and so, heard one this morning, I haven't seen such and so for, I think, 26 years, right? Such and so was that way 26 years ago, right? Stuff happens, right? I understand stuff happens. But now, let's say you have an opportunity to get together with such and so. Do you need to rehash what happened 26 years ago and what has happened between then and now? I don't think according to the scriptural example of John, Mark, and Paul, I don't think you have to. It's, it's curious to me that the Bible is silent on that. Again, Mark could have repented, kind of spilled his beans on that. Barnabas' discipleship could have made him uh, a stronger guy, or Paul could have just extended more grace. We really don't know. The point is, here's Mark. There with, uh, with all these guys and Paul's giving him an endorsement. So again, just like Onesimus, never underestimate God's ability to pick somebody up when we fall. So I think of it like this. Onesimus was a guy who was lost, right? Runaway slave, lost. He got saved, okay? So for a lost person that you think will never get saved, never underestimate God's ability to, to, to save that person. Mark was a believer who stumbled, right? By the same token, you know, Onesimus was lost and got saved. Mark stumbled and was restored, right? So never underestimate God's ability to restore a stumbling believer. I think that's relevant for us as believers. You know, we stumble. We've stumbled in the past. We'll likely have stumbling opportunities in the future. But never underestimate God's ability to restore and to heal and to clean up the wounds of that stumbling. He did it in Mark, and he can do it in us. Verse 11. And Jesus, who is also called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, they've proved to be a comfort to me. So this guy, Jesus, he's, Jesus was a common name in those days. It was sort of the Greek form of, of the Hebrew Joshua. And he, like Aristarchus and Mark, have proved to be a comfort to Paul. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. So again, as we talked about, you know, continuing earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, gives us a vested interest in what God is doing. This guy Epaphras, he has a vested interest in the Colossians. Why? Because he labors fervently for them in prayers. And sure enough, Paul says, I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you and for those who are in Laodicea. Laodicea was in and Hierapolis. Those were nearby uh, areas, and there were Christians in those areas. And this guy Epaphras had a great zeal for them because he labored in prayer for them. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. So Luke uh, joined Paul on his second missionary journey. Apparently, he's now still with him. That's faithfulness. Uh, in those days, uh, a physician was often a, um, 
um, basically um, not a slave, but a, but a personal um, employee, if you will, of a rich person, right? So a rich person would have his own doctor uh, to just kind of, you know, follow him around and attend to his needs. And uh, Luke was probably uh, an employee, if you will, of Theophilus, the guy that he writes, uh, that he addresses there in the beginning of, of the book of Acts. And probably, uh, most people say when he joined up with Paul, Theophilus sort of turned him loose to become Paul's personal physician. Paul, we know, had a, a thorn in his flesh. He had a uh, challenge with his eyes, and so he would have um, uh, had opportunity to, to need a physician along with him. So that was Luke. Now I want you to notice this other thing. This is very interesting to me. Notice what he's been saying about all these guys. These guys are beloved brothers. They're faithful. They're, you know, they're praying for you. They're, they're fellow servants. They're all these things. Luke is a beloved physician. And then Demas. What do we see about Demas? Demas greets you. Demas greets you. Now, Demas is also with Paul. At the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. In my mind, I kind of think Demas is with Paul right here. He's not deserted him. But I think Paul is kind of like, you wonder about, like, what's up with Demas, right? Like all these great adjectives and descriptions of all these guys, and then he just says, Demas greets you. It's almost like, Paul's kind of reading his mail a little bit, maybe. I don't know. But certainly by, by the end of Paul's life, Demas has deserted Paul, and he says, forsaken me. So what do we see here? Consider these three guys for a second. I mean, we read about a handful, but consider these three guys. Onesimus, John Mark, and Demas. You get the picture? Onesimus, a lost man can be saved. Mark, a Christian who stumbles can be restored. Demas, a companion of Paul, has the capacity to forsake Paul, right? Now, was Demas a Christian and lost his salvation? I'm not even going to go there, right? Because that's not the point. It's not the point. Let's, we do well to avoid theology for the sake of divisiveness, and yet just embrace the message. Embrace the warning, right? Never underestimate God's ability to save Onesimus. Never underestimate God's ability to restore John Mark. But never underestimate the risk of not remaining faithful to the end. I've seen that over the years. I've seen that. I've seen way too many, way too many people. You know, you just get distracted. Jesus, the parable of the sowers, says, you know, the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and, you know, the word just gets kind of choked out. The word in your own heart gets kind of choked out, right? Next thing you know, it's all about what's going on in the world, and there's plenty going on in the world, 
right? Or it's all about, you know, your ability to get ahead, you, you know, the desire to get ahead. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of need for that. You know, it's all about those things. Heed the warning of Demas. What was the, what was the problem with Demas? Why did Demas forsake Paul? Having loved this present world. You know, if there's a silver lining in what appears to be the chaos, again, God is sovereign, right? If there's a silver lining in what appears to be the chaos in this world today, I believe it's this. This world, apart from God, I don't want to count on it, right? Do you really want to trust your economic stability, your political stability, world peace stability? Do you really want to trust that? To me, that is clearly, if there is a silver lining in, in what we see today, do you really want to trust, uh, frankly, health care? <laughs> Pray for me, I'm in a quandary because I'm a doctor who's not sure I trust health care. Right? Be careful. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Onesimus can be saved. Mark can be restored. Demas can fall away. Finally, he says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphus in the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So there was apparently a letter written to the Laodicean church. Um, we don't really know much else about them until we get to the letters in Revelation. And uh, that's a whole other story. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. And I love this. How does Paul end this book? Grace be with you. Amen. How did Paul begin this book? To the saints and faithful brethren of Christ, in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, the beginning. Grace to you, the end. A great, great bookends in this book. And really, grace is our beginning and our end, right? Our life, I mean, honestly, our life is just a demonstration of God's grace from beginning to end with a lot of details in between, right? A lot of challenge in between. A lot of opportunities for growth in between, but in the, at the end of the day, it's all in the context of grace at the beginning, grace at the end. And we find ourselves in the middle somewhere, having the opportunity to extend grace to one another and to have fellowship with God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these words of encouragement these, uh, these individuals that you know intimately. 
And Lord, these, these individuals who had an impact on Paul's life, and as Paul had an impact on so many others' lives, including ours, these guys are right there with him, Lord. And we thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you that they set the example for us that even in the most difficult of circumstances, it's possible to remain faithful to the end. And so, Lord, please prevent us from being uh, a Demas, but help us to be faithful. Help us to be vigilant. And help us to live out grace. Help us to demonstrate the grace that you've placed on us and in us. So please have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.